invite you to turn to Acts chapter 13 in your Bibles, if you have one with you. While you turn there, as always, there's usually a method to my madness in terms of the songs I'm picking. And <laughs> Above all, you thought of me. Perhaps we can appreciate together just how much God went through to save us. Paul says this clearly in his letters. He says things like, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might by his poverty might become rich. And this isn't as simple as the millionaire doing life on the streets for a few days. (laughs) But rather, Paul cuts through the monetary symbols and he says in Philippians that Christ Jesus was in the form of God and did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And commentators and Bible translators scratch their heads on this Greek word, a thing to be grasped, maybe a thing to be utilized or a thing to be employed. But rather Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found In human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As humans, we don't totally fathom God, I don't think. It's why we need this library of books in the Bible. It's why we need the the Holy Spirit. And even then, we're informed by this book that still His ways are higher than ours, and right now it's as if we see Him through a mirror dimly. But when when we die, we shall see Him face to face and know Him. But even though, even so I should say, with what I do know about God and what I can't imagine, all-knowing, all-powerful, present everywhere, entirely sovereign, and Jesus utilizes not these things, but rather comes into humanity... As a human, I can tell you about humanity and how much it stinks sometimes. Jesus willingly forgoes all that for humanity. Furthermore, have you read the gospel accounts? (laughs) We live in a Christian bubble and maybe we've read the Bible perhaps enough times to know how the story goes and why it goes that way. But if it's possible, put on some non-Christian glasses. And read Jesus' actions in that lens as you read the Gospels. Why are you staying that course? Why are you going to Jerusalem to die on a cross? Why are you letting those people do this to you? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I lamented getting ready over at the house to come to church today. Oh, it's hot outside. Did I really have to come? Can we get some air conditioners for the church? God moves heaven and earth to save us. Jesus sacrificed His divinity and then sacrificed His humanity. Two very painful experiences, I'm sure. Where we're at in the broader narrative of Acts, Know this, that it's the third tier of the Great Commission. Acts 1-8 is the key verse in Acts. And there Jesus 
says that his disciples will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, and the disciples were witnesses, so much so persecution started. Jesus said his disciples will be his witnesses in Judea. And we read about Peter in Judea healing a paralyzed man, raising a dead woman. And then Jesus said his disciples will be witnesses in Samaria. Philip was in Samaria, and so Peter and John were evangelizing those villages. But now we're full speed ahead into the ends of the earth. With Antioch Church planted, and with the island of Cyprus being evangelized, we talked about that last week, now Paul and company are headed to what amounts to modern-day Turkey to continue this push of the gospel to the Gentiles. We have uh, quite a few verses to read this morning, even so, if you're able to stand, I invite you to, and we'll be reading Acts chapter 13, beginning with verse 13, going through verse 39 today. Let's read this together. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Persia and Pamphylia, And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on from Persia and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and among those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to that to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not, you will not let your holy one see corruption. 
For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Let's pray. Father, these are weighty matters. We have a tendency to read through Scripture, read through Old Covenant history, read through Christianese language, get a little lost, feel a little distant. Holy Spirit, please close that gap this morning. Help us to enter into this time and place and these words. May you please do a work of grace in our hearts. Help us to adore you above all things. Help us to get a glimpse of your affections for the world so that we too can share in those great affections. Holy Spirit, please move us to want to be like you to move heaven and earth to save people. Only you can accomplish this in our hearts. So I pray that it is you and your Holy Spirit, the one that is speaking. And I pray that our hearts and minds are open to hear your words and not mine. We ask and pray and beg all these things through the work and grace that Jesus Christ offers on our behalf. Amen. You may be seated. A few years ago, Phil, Bonnie, Christy, Calvin, and I went to Glacier National Park. And like good little tourists... Me and Christy had a good tour guide booklet, reading for several months, go here, do these things, hike there, visit that waterfall, and it's one thing to read about it, (laughs) especially if you've been here uh, planning for a vacation and you read about it for so long, but then when you get there, sometimes, maybe not all the time, but sometimes you're taken back by the effort, (laughs) the energy. Like hike a mile into a waterfall sounds easier on paper than when you're doing it with, uh, you know, a little boy who's one and a half. And especially at Glacier National Park, something you should take into consideration in planning and all what you do is people, heat, and slow traffic. <laughs> what we read about when translated to real life, well, other factors come into consideration when we go about from reading about doing to doing that doing. I think the same can be said for the Bible. We read, especially in narratives like Acts, so much activity that we hardly stop to consider the physical, the energy requirements. We first pick up our passage in verses 13 through 15 and just think about, think about what you're seeing in terms of activity. We read, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Persia and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Persia and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Well, first of all, maybe you didn't catch this, but Luke is reframing the missionaries here. 
They're, he's reorganizing them. Throughout the beginning of Acts 13, significantly in verse 2, when God speaks, He says there, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. We're told that John Mark is accompanying them in verse 5. Verse 7, we have that order again. Barnabas and Saul. But now here in verse 13, look at this. Now, Paul and his companions. <laughs> this is definitely Luke reframing the story for us, saying this is now a story about Paul and his companions being uh, Barnabas and John Mark. Interesting thing about Barnabas, Barnabas and John Mark is in Colossians 4.10 tells us that Mark is a cousin of Barnabas. Now, it could be for story reasons only, but I wonder, was Paul taking the reins a bit more beginning with this expedition? We don't know. It's been suggested. Some wonder if Paul did exercise a little bit leadership that really gave John Mark a sour taste over because it felt like before his cousin Barnabas was in charge, but now it's Paul and his companions. That's just speculation. That's not crystal clear in the gospel truth in the in the, in the Bible. But anyways, they set sail from Paphos, a town there in Cyprus, and they came to Persia in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. It seems like, I don't know, we don't know if John came to Pamphylia and then left, or if he left from Cyprus to go back to Jerusalem. Pamphylia was an economically poor province in the Roman Empire. Again, modern-day Turkey is the geography. And so, first we had this set sail. Again, think of the physical activity. Procuring a passage on a boat, a 170-mile sail. I read that, that malaria was a common disease to be had on the Pamphylia coast. But then, consider this. But they went on from Persia and came to Antioch in, in Pisidia. That's 11 English words in the ESV to describe, but one of my Bible commentators states it this way, that Antioch lay some 100 miles north of Persia, there's the hills, across the rugged and hostile Taurus Mountains. The area was noted for bandits and inhospitable terrain. Even the Romans had trouble keeping the peace here. It was no simple trek. Though Luke's record mentions nothing of the hardships they must have endured getting there, many are not aware of the Herculean efforts of self-sacrifice exerted by faithful and dedicated Christian laborers, but the Lord does and will record a reward accordingly. Some even say that maybe it was the prospect of this trek that deterred John Mark away. We don't know. If I'm honest, it might deter me away. <laughs> God moved heaven and earth. Jesus gave up his divinity and became a suffering servant vulnerable to the whims of humanity. Paul and Barnabas get that. <laughs> That's just, this is just one of the many things that Paul and Barnabas are willing to do to make sure people hear about Jesus. 100 miles, rugged, <laughs> bandits. And they came to Antioch in Pisidia. Antioch, so as not to confuse anyone, was the name, was the name of at least 16 cities <laughs> in the historical boundaries of an empire prior to Rome. But after, uh, Alexander the Great called the Seleucid Empire, the first emperor of the empire named many cities Antioch after his father's name. 
So this is not Antioch of Syria where the missionaries originated that we're talking about, obviously. In any case, they get there, they get into the synagogue on the Sabbath, what they did in Cyprus, which we talked about last week. And during a a Sabbath service in a synagogue, usually visiting rabbis like Paul would have a chance to speak, so that's what happens. And Paul gives his first sermon recorded in Acts. We know that he's been giving sermons at synagogues, but Luke records for us here either what Paul says entirely or thematically and summarily what he says. It's a lot like Stephen's sermon, the Stephen in which Paul was present and opposing before Paul was converted. And Paul's sermon here can be summarized in three general movements, which I'm entitling to keep with this overall theme of my sermon, that God breaches, God incarnates, and God restores. First, Paul recalls their shared history and how God has breached humanity. He says, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, maybe he's getting the attention of everyone, said, men of Israel, that would be Jews who happen to be out this far, and you who fear God, that would be Gentiles and not non-Jews who find themselves believing in Judaism and therefore attending the synagogue that day. Listen, the God of this people chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm he led them out of it. Here in verse 17, we begin to hear some key words that Paul wants his hearers to hone in on. Chose, made, led. These are all terms of sovereignty and providence showing us that God has breached humanity so much so he's running it. God chose Israel. You ever think about that? Why Abraham? Why not the people of southern India after Noah's kids left? Why not uh, you know, my old ancestors and the native clans of Great Britain <laughs> or the Native Americans. God chose Israel, but Paul's not bringing this up to get us thinking about why Israel. He's bringing this up to reinforce because God, <laughs> God chose and God made the people great when they were in Egypt. We remember the story of Joseph, the acting prime minister of Egypt, bringing Israelites to Egypt to save them in a famine. And when 400 years passed and Egypt had enslaved Israel, God led them out of it. In fact, this weird idiom with uplifted arm is an idiom meaning with great power. God did that in His power, God's providence, God's sovereignty. He's deciding how His history is going here. That's the point that Paul is making. Then verse 18, And for about 40 years He put up with them in the wilderness. I love that. (laughs) And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. And here it is again. Though we know Joshua led his army, it was God and God alone ultimately destroying the nations of the promised land. It was God giving Israel their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. That is 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the desert, about 10 years for the conquest and dividing up the land. And after that, he, God, he's the one providing again. He gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. I should really preach a series on that one time. (laughs) We have been. And when he, God, had removed him, he, God, raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man 
after my heart who will do all my will. So besides all of the obvious references to God doing and acting and God providing and God sovereign over his people, we now hear Paul highlight the fact that God sees in David a great reflection of himself, a man after my heart who will do all my will. We know Jesus to be the greater King David. Because Jesus says, if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. He perfectly reflects the Father. And Jesus says he only does what the Father tells him to do. He perfectly does all of his Father's will. And that's the point that Paul is driving to. In fact, he says in verse 23, of this man's offspring, David's descendants, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, Jesus was promised in many passages throughout the Old Testament. Three passages, which Paul will refer to in a bit. But also, Paul could be thinking of 2 Samuel 7, where David is promised of his kingdom a dynasty and an internal dynasty. This is realized in Christ. Paul continues, before his Christ coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Now, it's interesting that Paul would include John the Baptist. Some wonder if Paul was among the critics, or maybe Paul's uh, teacher Gamaliel was among the critics of John's ministry. We talk about Jesus' fame, but we must know that John was rather famous. Many came to him. He was so famous, he caught the ear of Herod, who beheaded him. Jesus said of John that there was no one greater. I think John's ministry is another story that we read in the Scriptures. We never stop to to realize that he wasn't exactly an isolated incident. His ministry was short, but explosive. It was so famous that Paul almost seems to be talking in a way that suggests he expects his hearers to know about him. And if these hearers at this church did return to Jerusalem for festivals, no doubt they would have known about John. To regroup, uh, God has been breaching humanity. He's chosen Israel. He's made them who they are. He's led them out of the promised land. He's given their promised land. He's gave them judges and eventually kings. And all of this... In all of this, God has been working towards a purpose. He's been moving heaven and earth for these people, but He's doing it for a purpose. He's promised a Savior and He's brought Him the Messiah. And that's the shift of Paul's message now. He's moving to reveal that while God in the past has breached humanity, now He has incarnated in the person and work of Christ. Now Paul is is bringing it home for his audience and he's moving from what we all know in the Scriptures to the Word of the Scriptures becoming flesh and walking among us. He says, again, brothers, sons of Abraham, again the Jews, and those among you who fear God, again those being anyone, not Jew ethnically, but attending the synagogue, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Remember what Jesus says to the woman at the well, the salvation is from the Jews. That's just how it is. Verse 27, For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, 
fulfilled them by condemning him. That to me is Paul's, the Bible is about Jesus statement. (laughs) Right there. Paul is saying if they have the prophets, and sometimes the prophets for Jews was a quick way to refer to the entire Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Paul is saying they have the whole truth about Jesus in their hands and it's read to their ears every Sabbath. And instead of accepting the Messiah when he came, though they fulfill the other parts of those prophets, the parts about those rejecting the Messiah. Verse 28, and although they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him in places like Isaiah 52, 53, Psalm 22, they took him down from the tree, the cross, and they laid him in a tomb. But God, he's back. <laughs> the God who's, who's been working and the God who breached humanity, he raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem and who are now his witnesses to the people. So like I said, Paul at first had been relaying events much like you or me are accustomed to every Sunday. Biblical history, stuff we all kind of know, but it's good to be reminded of, stuff that we affirm. Yet here is Paul talking about leaders that they know about still living. Pilate had Jesus executed. The leaders in Jerusalem carried out against Jesus all that was written about these old prophets that we study and love. And now Paul brings to the forefront eyewitnesses. See, Luke is a historian. Some of you know that Luke opens up his gospel account in the book of Acts and he basically says, I've spoken to eyewitnesses about these things to write my book. And here is Paul who would say, many believe his earliest letter, 1 Corinthians, he would say that many people who saw Jesus resurrected are still living. And he concludes by saying, Speaking of his own experience, seeing the resurrected Christ on the Damascus road, he says, he appeared also to me. See, God has incarnated. God has moved heaven and earth and incarnated. The reason, the whole reason for their history, the whole reason prophets have been writing and Israel has been forming, it's all God moving heaven and earth to bring Christ to save us. And so Paul connects these two main evidences to urge his audience to receive the Messiah, the testimony of witnesses today and the testimony of scriptures about Jesus. He says, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, right? Why he breached human history, why he spoke to us, why he gave us his word, why he saved Israel, this He has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is Psalm 7, David writing. Reminds me of what God the Father says to Jesus at his baptism and at the Mount of Tribulation. You are my beloved son. And God was saying that to Christ in a much more literal, real way than just to David, a man after God's own heart. In other words, it was deifying Christ. This is why we call uh, this section of Paul's sermon, God Incarnates, because when God says, you're my son, we need to hear that as when a human being says to another human being, you're my son, (laughs) 
Or when a dog barks to its pup. <laughs> You're my son. <laughs> I, I guess I don't know why dogs sound like that. Um, but we're all in the same species here. And so when God says to Jesus, You're my son, this is deifying Christ. This is God stating, I have incarnated through you. The author of Hebrews, many believe to be none other than Paul, makes this point in Hebrews 1, which uh, Lois read to us. Jesus is the radiance of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of His power. Jesus made purification for our sins and is exalted over all things. Who else can have it said about them? God said to me, I'm His Son. He's the one who fathered me. (laughs) Jesus is God's Son. That's the point that Paul makes. And as for the fact that He, God, raised Him, Jesus, from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, when He says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But He whom God raised up did not see corruption." In other words, Paul is saying David is prophesying about Christ here because David died. (laughs) The ultimate David, the final David, the realized uh, King David, Jesus, he died, but he resurrected, not seeing corruption. But rather, as Hebrews 2.14 says, though through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. How did Jesus resurrect? How did He miss the penalty, the result of all sin, true everlasting death? How did Jesus overcome that one? And and instead, how did Jesus give death a dying blow? How did He destroy death? Because it was God who incarnated. That has been the point. That has been the objective. Paul started at the beginning of Israel's history in Abraham. But the Bible goes back further. And the Bible gives us in three chapters the entire focus and intent of what God wants to do in human history. First, He makes the world. Second, He makes humanity, His prized creation that He wishes to commune with. Thirdly, humanity breaks that connection with sin. So fourthly, God promises to restore that communion. There it is. That's the lens that you need to read the entire Bible in. That's what all of human history is now pointing to. And that's the way that Paul drives it home as he moves from God incarnating to God restoring. God restores. That's what he does. He says in verse 38, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. The faithful hear that phrase, and they should hear it deep. See, that's the longing of the soul. That's the reason some might say for their whole faith, they long for forgiveness. As I said, the problem was sin by mankind breaking that connection with God and the hope the entire Bible leans into how to restore that connection. Paul is saying God has been breaching humanity. God has incarnated into humanity because God's ultimate hope is to give you forgiveness through this man. And furthermore, Paul could say, I and Barnabas have taken a boat from Cyprus. We've hiked a hundred miles. 
In fact, to borrow some of Paul's language in 2 Corinthians, I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. In other words, Paul is willing to move heaven and earth to get to Antioch and Pisidia because God wants to restore. God does all these things. Paul does all these things as well for all the churches he makes it to because God wants to restore. How does Jesus offer forgiveness? Well, Paul's glad you asked that. (laughs) He answers the congregation in the last verse we're looking at today. Verse 39 says, And by Him, Jesus, Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The ESV made a very interesting translation choice here. I know you don't care, but I have nobody else to talk to. So um, I was almost tempted to uh, preach out of a different translation for this sermon, but then I figured I'd have to explain why I'm preaching out of a different translation. So either way, I'm explaining this to you. The word in question is freed. Now, most ESVs have a footnote explaining the word for freed is usually translated justified, but the word is used twice here in verse 39. And I think the translation uh, of this particular word being freed is because of its second usage. But hear this, and by him, Christ, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The point is this, is basically... Paul's letters. You read this in Romans or in Galatians. Again, I said in verse 38 that through this man, forgiveness is proclaimed to you that hits the faithful deep. The entire old covenant, the law of Moses, as Paul calls it here, was the lousy answer to this restoration problem. How to be restored to God. The law was the answer up to this point. But Paul delivers the sad state of truth about the law of Moses in Romans 3.20. And he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now think about that. Paul is saying this. Reading and trying to do the law is self-defeating. <laughs> like the law says, you lose if you read these words. Why? <laughs> Well contained in these words are laws against sinning, and if you're guilty of any one of any one of those, you lose. The punishment is death, and you start reading the laws, and you know right away, I lose. <laughs> and so, what do people do? Well, there's a way in the law to skirt around the losing part. The death that's deserved for the guilty part. It's the sacrificial system. People bring sacrifices to the temple. They are in essence saying, my sins I'm confessing to God and and knowing that God demands my blood, I symbolically sacrifice this very clean, unblemished animal and I offer it up on my behalf saying, take him and spare me. His death is what I deserve. And the sacrifice is twofold because not only is it just any animal, but it could be animals from a worshiper's livelihood. It could be animals that a worshiper had purchased. And so it's a sacrifice of livelihood or money. A worshiper is stating, I take this sin so serious, I'm willing to sacrifice what I can to make it right, God. And it's a lousy system. It's not irreverent to say that. Paul just said that the law was incapable of saving sinners. 
Hebrews says in chapter 7, 18, and 19 that the law, that this law, this system is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So that restoration, that hope that the entire Bible, the entirety of human history and what God has always been leaning into and drawing near to, drawing near to God, forgiveness. And that's the other part of verse 39 in Acts 13 that Paul makes in his sermon. The better hope is Christ. And by Him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. See, the law of Moses never offered in a complete out, right? It was always do these things. If you sin, you need to sacrifice. <laughs> and I don't know about you. I'll just, I'll just speak about me, but I, I think I sincerely believe that I sin almost countless times every day. That's just me, even, even if it's just thoughts. And the law of Moses would have any, would have anyone in a vicious cycle of sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. But if what Paul says is true, that God has incarnated through the person and work of Jesus, and if He has become our sacrificial lamb, Hebrews 7 later on would write, consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. And that is again picking up on the theme. Drawing near to God. God restoring us. That's the ultimate hope of His breaching humanity and incarnating. Jesus is the better hope introduced since He always lives to make intercession for them. That is, those who draw near to God through Him. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. That's the better hope. Jesus is not only our high priest, not only the priest in the law of Moses taking the sacrifices, but Jesus is also the sacrifice himself. Being fully man and being fully unblemished like the sacrifices, he only has to lay down his life once for all time for all mankind. And he proves his own sinless nature and the unlimited value of his atonement whenever he defeats death. When he rises again and when he proves the grave couldn't hold him, when he shows that unlike all of mankind who would die and stay dead because they're guilty with sin... Jesus dies and kills death in the process. I can't do that. (laughs) This is why Jesus, what Jesus offers is better than the law of Moses. Jesus offers communion into his life. And the book of Acts has been showing that he offers communion by the Holy Spirit as well. That beyond forgiving us of sin, God indeed restores that unity had at the world's beginning by coming to reside in us, His righteousness and His holiness in us. And He's done all that by moving heaven and earth for us. The truth has so caused, so caused Paul and Barnabas to begin moving their corners of heaven and earth to make it out to Antioch of Pisidia in their missionary travels. And I have to ask, friends, I asked myself this week, and this is what I ask you, God has moved heaven and earth for you. What are you willing to do for Him? 
So God wants disciples. But here's how God moves to impress upon His disciples to respond like disciples. He does so in love. He does it in love. I quoted Philippians 2 at the beginning of this message, talking about how Christ moved heaven and earth. He emptied Himself. He set aside His deity. He became a servant to the point of death. But here's why Paul began to talk about Christ beginning to move heaven and earth to begin with. He frames all of that with an urge to his hearers. Paul says in the beginning of Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God, and so on. You see how Paul framed that? He was making an urge to his hearers. And then he says, you need to reflect Christ. Here's what he did. Paul states that in Christ, who moved heaven and earth for us, who sacrificed so much, did so because his heart and his mind, which he has given us by his Holy Spirit, is a mind that does nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility counts others more significant than himself. God looks not only to his own interest, but the interest of others. It's why He breached humanity. It's why He incarnated. It's why He spends literally all of human history leaning into this great hope, the hope of Christ. Friends, do you and I hear and receive that love today and do you and I have the heart and mind to mimic it? Pray that we do. Let's pray. Father, like I joked... uh, we complained having to get out of bed today and walk to the church or go to the church. Um, We complain with all the trials that we have. Not to feel guilty that we complain, but also give us a heart and mind and eyes to put in perspective what all you gave up. Uh, Father, you didn't have to get out of bed and walk to the church and that was it. Um, You had to get out of your deity and come into humanity. And spend 33 years and die the death you deserve, you didn't deserve, but the death that we deserved. But you did it all because you love us. You did it all because you so desperately want to do life with us, to have that union shared in the garden at the world's beginning. And through Jesus Christ, you extend that hand to us to take us back into that union. And through the Holy Spirit, we can be living and walking and doing life with you again. But Father, would you please show us all that you went through so that it would move us, like Paul and Barnabas, to be willing to go to great lengths to continue to spread this good news and share the gospel. Many of us, the beginning of those great lengths just involves picking up a phone or talking to that person we haven't wanted to talk to or whatever the case may be. Holy Spirit, would you give us the nudge today to go get over ourselves and to get into you and to do what you want us to do. Father, help us to see that any inconveniences we think we might have in having to fulfill your mission is not compared to the inconveniences you had. And Father, would you forgive us if we have been complaining to you, if we have been unwilling to do what you've called us to do, if we've been finding any and every excuse we can to ignore your voice. Would you forgive us of that? Would you help us to repent by your Spirit's sake? 
by your grace, would you invite us back into doing your mission through love because it's the best thing we can do for our lives. We love you, we thank you, and we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.